Hello and welcome to the Entrepreneurship and Leadership Podcast. Each episode we discuss what leadership challenges aspiring entrepreneurs face as they build and scale their startups. I'm your host, Michael Fröhlich. For the past four years, I've been running the Center for Digital Technology and Management, short CDTM. There, I help to connect, educate and empower university students to drive innovation through technology. My next career step will be founding a startup myself. To be ready for the journey ahead, I want to learn from people that have done it before. I want to deep dive into their experiences. In the Entrepreneurship and Leadership Podcast, you can expect exciting conversations about the tactics and strategies that it takes to succeed as a startup founder and a leader. Today, we are joined by Giza Biermann, the CEO at Pina Earth, a climate tech startup. Pina protects our forests by quantifying and rewarding sustainable forestry. Through Pina, local forests can become certified carbon projects. With their technology-driven approach, Pina does this at a fraction of the cost of traditional solutions and enables even small forest owners to plant more climate-resilient trees, increase tree diversity and have their forests store additional carbon. Gaze and I were colleagues at the Center for Digital Technology and Management, short CDTM, where we ran the program together with some more colleagues of the management team. Gesa finished her doctorate a few years ahead of me and went on to found Pina. I was always impressed by her drive to make the world a better place and her pragmatism in doing so. And founding Pina to protect Europe's forests was just such an impressive step. Gesa, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Michael. So Gesa, to start out with, Can you maybe tell us a little bit about your background and what you and the team at Pina are doing? Sure. Um, so I've been active in the field of sustainability for a little bit over 10 years now, since my studies at the Technical University of Munich, where the program um, that I did is called Sustainable Resource Management. And I put a focus on agriculture, soil science and water management back then, and I really loved it. So it was very hands-on. Um, we did excursions into forests, we dug holes to figure out soil profiles, we visited farmers. Um, as I said, it was very hands-on. It was really great to just basically learn about the planet that we live on and what human interaction does to it. And from there, after my master's degree, I did a short stop in strategy consulting, and then I went on to the CDTM, as you mentioned, Center for Digital Technology and Management, to be part of the leadership team there. Um, in parallel, I did my PhD, um, again, focusing on food, because it has a huge impact on our environment. So I studied um, sustainable food systems in my doctorate. And then finally, I think the theme that ties all of this together is focusing more and more on the question of how to tackle core environmental problems, but in a scalable way with technology. Mm -hmm. If you think about it in a Venn diagram, I think that was kind of the overlap for me, environment and technology. And now with Pina, you already mentioned in your introduction what we do, but let me quickly maybe expand on that a little bit. So we help forest owners get certified to sell carbon credits. And this new income is used to reinvest in their forests and prepare them for a changing climate. Now, what makes our approach different is the focus on smaller landowners, first of all, and turning monocultures into biodiverse mixed forests. Mm -hmm. So pretty much a substantial paradigm shift in the management style of a forest. 
And uh, we started out in late 2020 um, with Peanut Earth and have since then closed our seed round with participation from Y Combinator and are now 15 people in the team. So it has been quite an exciting journey so far, um, I can definitely say. But the initial, initial idea for Peanut Earth did not really come about in this romanticized eureka moment that some might imagine. <laughs> so we didn't wake up one morning and, and said, okay, let's uh, improve on forest carbon projects. But for us, the start was really the team and the consensus that we want to have a positive impact on society with our careers. Um, I like to draw up the number of 80,000 hours, um, which is basically the time that you have to spend on a career as a human. Um, and I think it should really mean something, the time that you spend there. And so for us, we went on a very structured search for which problem we would like to spend those 80,000 hours trying to help solve. Came up with a bunch of different ideas. I think it was around 150 in our long list. And we further narrowed this down. Um, and we're really interested in the carbon market as an instrument to basically realign economic and environmental goals mm -hmm. and still saw a lot of problems in this market that we with our skill set could really help solve. For all who are interested in learning more about this journey, also listen to her interview in the Mostly Awesome podcast run by CDTM, where I just uh, had a listen the other day. Also, great, uh, great introduction to Pina and looking behind the scenes. Now, what I also find fascinating, literally, you weren't afraid to get your hands dirty in the beginning <laughs> of your studies, quite literally, and now also uh, going on to really uh, fixing the big problems or trying to fix the big problems we have. So, um, can maybe contextualize uh, carbon credits a bit uh, more. I'm sure that most listeners today have heard in some way or another of voluntary carbon credits, maybe because also because of the recent critique that was voiced uh, regarding this voluntary carbon market. Yes, sure. I mean, I maybe I'll start with summarizing the basic mechanism again, just to make sure that uh, everyone's aligned on this. So companies emit CO2 with their operations, um, at least the majority of them. Um, first of all, very important to mention, they should reduce um, their emissions. And for the remaining emissions, they can invest in carbon projects. Um, carbon projects generate. Um, the currency is the carbon credit, which stands for one ton of CO2 equivalent that is sequestered. And what these carbon projects do is they store carbon. Um, basically, there's two ways to do this. Either it's avoided emissions, so mm -hmm. basically avoiding new emissions entering the atmosphere or removing emissions that are already in the atmosphere. Those are the two main mechanisms. And as I mentioned already, carbon markets, I believe, are a very strong tool to finally realign economic and ecological goals. But there's definitely more professionalization and also regulation needed in the market. And you mentioned there's there's criticism. Um, and if you'd like, I can expand a little bit on the... I, I see kind of two main themes there. Um, yeah, the, please. So uh, really, what's the what's not working well there? At the yeah. Um, the first point is criticism more of the market generally. Um, so at the highest level, it's an accusation of greenwashing. Mm -hmm. And there are initiatives like the science-based targets, for example, that are very clear on this point. So you should, as a company, you should reduce first and carbon credits are an additional investment. It's not a replacement to these efforts. So it um, should rather be the last resort. Uh, first, try to reduce the emissions you're creating, and then only if there are really things that you cannot get rid of, then only go to uh, carbon credits, in a sense. Yes, exactly. And I think this is especially important for hard-to-abate emissions or industries that have emissions that are hard to reduce, for example. So 
I wouldn't necessarily say it's only a last resort. It's something that is also um, a short-term solution. Mm -hmm. So while we're working on further reduction technologies, it's still very worthwhile to invest in carbon projects in the meantime. And so there's this aspect of time and also the yeah. aspect of really focusing on reduction first. So that's, I think, um, putting the first criticism into perspective on greenwashing. Uh, important to think of reduce first and then offset the rest, or at least invest in carbon credits for the rest. And the second um, criticism that we've seen also recently a little bit more is on a project level. So basically asking, does this specific project actually sequester, um, so avoid or remove the carbon that it promises to do? Mm -hmm. And the criticism mostly focuses on the criterion of additionality. That's really one of the core criteria a carbon credit has to uh, bring to the table. And what this means is a carbon credit stores carbon that would not otherwise have been removed or avoided in the atmosphere. So if this project never existed, um, basically the carbon would have landed somewhere where we would not like to see it. So if putting it in the context of forest, because I think that makes it easier to understand. Yeah. Um, so basically we see the projects that get the most criticism are conservation projects. And the argument here is that if this project did not generate income through carbon credits, the forest will be cut down for economic reasons. So mm -hmm. because you're paying for the carbon sequestration, the forest will not be cut down and these um, emissions will not be released into the atmosphere. So the project is additional. But it becomes a little bit difficult um, to argue where to set the business as usual scenario. So what would happen without the carbon credit project? Um, is this forest in danger of not being cut down? And there it tends to become a somewhat philosophical discussion at some point. And that's really where the criticism has focused recently. How do you set the good a good business as usual scenario that makes What's sense. What's the counterfactual scenario? So how can we set the fair baseline? And there might be some forests that are really at risk of being cut down, right? Where this argument would make sense. Yeah. But then just having a forest, not planning to do anything with it, and then arguing that you now get carbon credits for that is obviously a bit of a shortcut. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So that's, that's a difficult um, thing. And For us to put into perspective what we do at Peanut Earth, we don't focus on conservation right now. I'm not saying that I don't think this is a valuable type of project. It definitely is, but it's a bit harder to figure out which are of high quality, I believe. Um, what we do or where we differentiate is we focus on forest adaptation. Mm -hmm. So looking at existing monocultures and instead of saying we're completely going to do a hands-off management, we actually support the forest owner in changing their management style to a way of working with nature and not against it. Um, it's very much like a shift from conventional to regenerative agriculture, for example. Mm -hmm. I think this is something that people are a little bit more familiar with than the forestry sector, but it's something very similar that we are trying to achieve on the ground. So forest adaptation, how I understood it also from uh, the podcast episode which you are listening to, is now we take an existing forest and we will look at it what different kinds of plants, trees, etc. can be put there to make it more resilient, to also make it by this process uh, less likely to be affected by uh, natural uh, weather events, disasters, etc. Yes. And also in the same process, store more carbon. Yes, exactly. And that's also why actually biodiversity plays a huge role in our projects, even though it's not what we monetize in the end. So mm -hmm. the actual product is the carbon credit. 
Um, but biodiversity plays a huge role because um, if you compare it, I like to compare it sometimes to um, a financial portfolio. So if we, if you were to invest only in one type of asset class, which basically a monoculture forest, if you have almost 100% pine trees, it's like you have just one asset class. Now, if there's a future ahead of us, and it's also actually already here, climate change that has a lot of different risks where you don't know what will happen or what will be affected it's a lot smarter to diversify your portfolio so it's essentially the same thing that we're doing in the forest we're introducing new tree species with a focus on climate resilient tree species because we can actually project into the future which trees will have a higher chance of survival and then this aspect of biodiversity plays into a reduced risk profile uh, for the forest yeah so not just tips for uh, how to uh adapt your forest but also how diversity plays into your financial portfolio <laughs> yes like the, this is not uh i have to think if we need a disclaimer this is not financial <laughs> advice, not financial advice. <laughs> at all uh, no but i think right so just uh, betting everything on one horse uh, which monocultures are right it, from the outside you don't have to be uh, a scientist to understand that there is obviously some risk with that uh, strategy uh, and i think similar the way i think or look personally at the carbon market so not an expert here but it's a bit of the same issue right it will not be the solution that solves uh, the issues we have with emissions but it's one piece of the puzzle and similarly we have a set of diverse approaches to how we can tackle this from uh, really direct air capture to actually planting or adapting uh, trees and forests to maybe reduction techniques that line the future are being developed Yes, definitely. I think we have to get out of the or mentality to tackle the climate crisis, but really think of and. So what are all yeah. the things that we have available? We need to use all those tools. And for us at Peanut Earth, it happens to be forest adaptation that we're trying to scale. Cool. So thanks for giving a bit of perspective what you're really doing at Pina. My impression is, and also what I've heard people compliment on, is that uh, you've achieved uh, to create quite a positive company culture at Pina. Can you maybe uh, tell us a little bit about that? Yes, so first of all, thank you. Um, it's something that also I'm very proud of, um, basically the team at Peanut Earth, because what else is a company culture um, except for the sum of, of the individuals that come together? And I think the main part is that we share the belief that we want to do something purposeful with our careers. So coming back to the 80,000 hours that I mentioned in the beginning, um, these 15 employees that are now with us, I think this is the main reason that drives them to us. Um, and we do, of course, have a certain level of ambition. I think that's the yeah. second part that ties into the equation. And there's also, I think like a lot of startups, we have a set of values that we try to transport to the outside so people can actually check, hey, will I, if I join this team, will I have a good time there? Am I value and principle aligned? I actually like the word principles a little bit better than values. And for us, just to name um, a few of them, it's a curiosity to learn. Mm -hmm. It's a mentality where you basically think of just do it. I don't know if you know the Shia LaBeouf video, but that's actually the one linked <laughs> to our values yeah. <laughs> with, of course, uh, to be taken with a grain of salt. Yeah. Um, managing our resources mindfully. And this is um, a holistic view, not just on environmental resources, but also um, your personal resources. So how can we yeah. manage to achieve great things with a limited team, for example? Um, being kind is one of our core values. So always, uh, you, you can be very direct to people, but you can still be kind at the same time. So this idea of radical candor yeah. and not taking ourselves too seriously. Um, I know, you know, putting me. the shield above really in the app. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. So I, I know, you know, me personally um, as well, Micha, and I think that's something that's really important to me is to 
do a good job, but to realize that, you know, no one's perfect. You're not yeah. perfect yourself. And to also not forget to have fun, even though you're, we're working on a very serious topic um, in our daily life. Yeah, I think what, what always struck me as a very helpful guidance uh, is you have to take the things you're working on seriously, but you never... Uh, you really must not take yourself too seriously. And uh, this, I think, plays very much into this having fun in what you do and uh, being okay with not everything uh, going perfectly with the work you do, but also then, of course, if you lead a team or work in a team, also uh, look at the things you did wrong or where you made mistakes and um, be able to laugh also about this. Yes, definitely. And I think that's where these principles help you is to re be reminded of this. But it's, I mean, it's definitely not enough to have them on your website. So um, my co-founder and I think a lot about how can we actually make these principles come to life. And um, I have a couple of examples of how we do this um, as a team, because I think that's also why we are able to live our company culture as, as well as we are. One thing, for example, is involving employees in decision-making. I think mm -hmm. that's extremely important. So we set the, um, we use the objectives and key results framework called OKRs, and we involve the entire team in setting those OKRs. So it's very much a bottom-up process and not something that we decide top-down. I think that's very important for motivation. Um, and then the second thing is we um, try to implement room for personal growth and a sort of mentality of lifelong learning. Um, yeah. in, the, in the founder role, but also for everybody in the team. So we have a development budget, might not be huge because obviously we're still a startup. <laughs> um, and for example, also learning goals as part of the um, OKRs that we set. Um, so personal learning goals of the employees. Yes, yeah. yes. For, exa um, for example, in the tech team, I think that's yeah. maybe easier to imagine certain frameworks that somebody might learn that are new to the person um, and they can then implement maybe in the next uh, sprint cycle, for example. And um, one last thing maybe that I think works really well for us is we always have in our weekly all hands meeting where we all come together and report on progress and maybe um, hurdles where we could help each other out. We also have an appreciation section. So it's, it's really, it's very easy. Um, so you can also implement it maybe in your organization. It's basically a slide where everybody can collaborate beforehand and you can just tag someone. So I would say, for example, at Micha, thank you so much for inviting me to your podcast episode. I love talking to you um, because we noticed it's so easy to lose these small things that make work so amazing um, yeah. in the daily um, hustle. And this works really well. So we do that every week. Yeah, it's, that's a nice idea. Also, you know, normally when you meet, it's all about what problems are on the table, how do we yes. solve them? And uh, it's easy to, to miss the, not the big ones, but the small successes that happen in everyday uh, life or work, so to speak. And I think it, uh, it makes a difference if people get the recognition for them. Yeah, definitely. I really feel that. Yeah, it's definitely a highlight of the week, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I want to focus on uh, two topics moving forward in this podcast a bit. First, I want to talk to you how the transition from research to entrepreneurship was. And then I want to hone in a bit more on your role as CEO, your responsibilities. And I'm also curious to learn more about uh, how you learn as a CEO. So... We got to know each other during your uh, PhD or doctorate time at uh, CDTM, uh, where we together were part of the leadership team. I would characterize the work environment there as highly dynamic with a lot of yeah, underspecified goals to work on and a fair share of individual responsibility. A bit or how also we described it at the time, a startup within the university context. So can you 
talk about how this transition from being a researcher at CDTM to now really being a co-founder in a startup was for you? Yes. Um, so it was, I would say, very smooth because I was still completing my PhD for quite a <laughs> while during uh, also being part of the um, startup founding journey already. But um, on a serious note, I think what you said about CDTM very much applies. So it's a very diverse task um, area that you're responsible for. It's very fast paced. You're already in a role of taking over responsibility and ownership. So I think from that perspective, there's really not too much of a transition, honestly. Um, I think something that is definitely new is you're not only responsible for your own output or outcomes um, as one single individual, but you change to a role of um, enabling others. I think mm -hmm. that's been the biggest shift so far uh, for me personally. So basically from an individual contributor to a leadership role. So in this sense, also realizing goals, not just by getting your own hands dirty, but also right working or creating output work, solving problems through others. In a yes, sense. definitely. So are there aspects in your new role uh, where having been a researcher, so more this research aspect, now helps you? Yes, definitely. Um, I think what is still very much the same or also why I chose the entrepreneurship path is this love of learning mm -hmm. or curiosity. So in a PhD, obviously, you get to dive very deeply into one topic. Um, that was an amazing experience. And now I'm learning more about, I would say, not just one individual topic, but for a lot of different <laughs> roles that I have different hats on. Um, now for our startup, Peanut Earth, it's a very close to science startup, I would mm -hmm. say. So having the scientific background myself um, helps me. So basically understanding how scientific knowledge is created and on a practical level, how a paper is structured, for example, um, helps me figure out quickly where the findings are and how to incorporate them into our own work. We also yeah. talk to researchers a lot, actually. So that's very helpful to come from the same peer group. Talk to language. Yes, exactly. We share the same same vocabulary. At Peanut Earth, we also like to work very hypothesis-driven. So, for example, in an area where you might not expect it so much, but in sales, we work in experiments. Experiments are something that originally come from science. Yeah. So in the beginning, we set up an experiment sprint. We set a hypothesis and then test our assumptions before iterating on our strategy. So in this way, we ensure that we don't just follow our gut feeling all the time, but the work really is data driven. Yeah, it's a bit also this lean startup approach here. Run the experiments and then we not just listen to your customers, but really see how they behave. Yes, exactly. And try to see patterns even yeah. early on. So how long uh, does such a sales experiment run? Yes. So for us, we try to do about a month. I think yeah. it really depends on which um, uh, yeah, which area you're in. So we're um, in a B2B context. So our sales cycles tend to be a little bit longer. So I feel like one month is the earliest that we can see results for most um, experiments. There are some, for example, if you're testing a certain strategy on LinkedIn, you can see yeah. results a lot quicker because basically you might be counting the likes or the inbound leads you're getting or things like that. But for us, um, if you're really trying to track outreach to a contract signed, it just has a little bit of a longer um, time until you have results. Understood. So doing a PhD also comes with the doctorate or doctorate in Germany also comes with the doctor title. And as I would imagine, you were working with uh, forest owners, at least my preconception of them is still rather traditional uh, customer group. So. Does your doctor title, in a sense, help establish also credibility with your customers and partners? 
I think it can be a door opener. It's it's also hard. We've, I've never actually asked anybody if that's the reason why they talk to, to us or to me. Um, but I think if anybody out there is thinking about doing a doctorate, that's not a good enough reason to do it, just yeah. to have the title in the end. Um, I think what works a lot, uh, or what's the main reason our customers like to talk to us, um, I think also what you just mentioned in, in Lean Startup and, and a lot of other books that give you tips on how to found a company, one of the main things is listen to your customer. I think that's so important to become an active listener. And the second thing we like to do is to really, really do our homework. Mm -hmm. uh, this is something that I definitely share as a value with my co-founder, um, who also reads basically everything he gets under his nose. <laughs> and I think that honestly was a door opener for us. So anytime we talk to somebody, uh, they could tell that we read those thousands of pages of norm documents about forest carbon projects, which is maybe not the most fun task of the startup journey. Oh, but I, I would guess that. <laughs> <laughs> but, but really showing that you care about the topic and you want to know it in depth, I think yeah. that's, that's more important than the title. Yeah, not just being in there because founding a startup is fun or sounds fun, Yes, but really also doing the nitty-gritty work that's necessary such that you can really build a winning product. Exactly. So... If I turn this around, right, so for sure there are some aspects where you know you told us there were aspects how you benefited from your time as a researcher. Are there patterns or behaviors that um, from your time at university that you had to unlearn? Um, I, I can't really think of any perfect examples of things that I had to unlearn. Um, I know I talked about hypothesis-driven thinking before, um, which is still very much applicable. Something that I think is different now is the faster pace of course yeah. but i'm also enjoying that so <laughs> in a phd you oftentimes have to wait for a peer review for example and this can be very trialing if you're someone who is very impatient like myself and i'm actually enjoying this new freedom of being more in charge again of when you get results for certain things yeah yeah okay faster pace i i, I can i can see that <laughs> so Uh, that was your time as a researcher. Now you are CEO of Pinot Earth. It has a glamorous ring to it, uh, doesn't it? So I want to focus a bit more on what this actually means. So what is your job as C CEO of a startup uh, really like? Um, and to start out with, you were the leader of Pinot, of the entire organization. And I would be interested to know how you define good leadership for yourself. It's a great question, and I will obviously not be able to answer this um, in, in completion, but it's something that I do think about a lot for myself. Um, and I think you have to be a role model in everything you expect from others. Um, personally, one of my main principles is fairness, and I think it's unfair to expect things of others that you do not do yourself. Mm -hmm. um, at least that's my view. And... Um, Yeah, and maybe some to put it into a little bit more practical context, some things that I expect of myself, so I also uh, feel like it's it's fair to expect it of others. For example, very important is to be reliable and conscientious. And conscientiousness to me is that you take ownership for projects and you really drive them to the conclusion mm -hmm. and then also own the end result, whether that's good or bad. Um, and of course, as a company, you have to establish the culture of people being allowed to make mistakes as long as they own up to it. I think that's very important. Um, striving for competence is really essential to me. So again, this mindset of lifelong learning, so yeah. an ambition to keep improving on the skills that you maybe are already supposed to have because as a CEO of a, of a young startup, you get thrown in a lot of different tasks that are new to you. Um, and I think this awareness of that you're not perfect yourself 
also brings a certain vulnerability to the table. So mm-hmm. if you're willing to share this with your team, I think it's also essential to create an authentic leadership style in the end. Yeah. And finally, and this is something that maybe not everybody will agree with, but I don't really divide very much between work and private life. So essentially, I work with people who I also love to hang out with, which is yeah. a huge benefit to my <laughs> to my life personally. And I think that's also affects my leadership style and um to me it means having a bottom line thing is having the trust in everybody in the team and i think that's really essential for a functioning team yeah i think you mentioned a few very important points here but uh, just to to comment on one of them um this acceptance of failure but i think in combination with the expectations that people own up own up for it and i think It's better for someone to tell you if he or she doesn't know how to do something or struggles to actually complete the task because of a, let's call it, lack of competence or some other reason rather than holding it back because... Yes. Right. So that would be the worst case in a sense that it just falls uh, under the table and uh, then you only realize it once it's too late. But this only works if you trust people. Yes. If you also, as the CEO of a company are able to admit that you don't know everything and there are things you don't know and you have to figure them out with the team. Yes, exactly. And I think feedback is so important on this. So I always try to get everybody to work on instant feedback, but it's not so easy. So we have a couple of fallback mechanisms in case instant <laughs> feedback failed for some reason. We have weekly one-on-ones with um, the people that you're working most closely with. And then we have a monthly more in-depth feedback session where I also like to ask, hey, do you think I have any blind spots? Yeah. And this can be about anything, right? This can be about the company strategy. This can be about how we're working and collaborating together. Um, is there anything that I am doing that is not letting you work at your best? And I think this question already invites in very um, transparent and maybe somewhat confrontational responses, yeah. but I think it's important to signal that there is this openness. Yeah. Can only agree to that. Uh, I think I should do a podcast episode on how to run good one-on-ones. I think this would also <laughs> be interesting. And at least uh, from my perspective, such an important uh, part of actually leading any team. Uh, yes, I know it's a passion topic of yours as well, how to be basically a better coach as a manager. <laughs> yeah, I think it depends, right? So coaching has more this uh, very strong active listening uh, component to it and more asking the right questions rather than, you know, putting in your own stuff. Um, but I think sometimes, right, once you're in a managing position, you're responsible also for results, for actually feedback, for helping also make decisions for uh, the people you you manage. Uh, I think probably it's not just coaching, but that's for me to figure out. And I think um, it would be really interesting to have like a couple of uh, yeah founders in here and talking about uh, how to run one-on-ones. So something for a future episode here. Now, uh, maybe to uh, ask one follow-up questions on this. Do you have any mechanisms on how you hold yourself accountable to uh, these, um, yeah, signposts of good leadership you want to actually express in your role yes so anything that i expect of anybody else i also expect of myself as i just mentioned the way we try to create a sense of psychological safety with peanut earth is through something that we call objective job results cards Mm -hmm. so for every role and this includes the ceo and the cto role has a description where you can see what are the areas of responsibility and what are the key objectives that this role um, helps to achieve And for me, that includes, of course, um, yeah, the strategy and implementation of the st- 
strategy, financial security of the startup, a lot of stakeholder management, including investors, customers, employees, the general public, I would say. Yeah. And this is something that I can use then to also benchmark, am I on track? Am I actually fulfilling my role or am I failing in some way that I need to pay more attention to? And I see my role in summary as an opportunity seeker. Yeah. Um, basically, I try to bring up as many opportunities as possible for Pina Earth to push us forward. I think this was very much reflected in the application for Y Combinator, for example, yeah. where the odds are most definitely against you. <laughs> um, in the seed round that we completed in um, hiring, for example, as well, um, and now I'm focused on sales and trying to create as many opportunities as well um, in this area. And there's this German saying, and I don't know if there's a good English translation, to always have multiple irons in the fire. <laughs> so <laughs> you never know which one will turn out well. And that's something that I think for me personally is important for the CEO role to really open up a lot of opportunities for the company. Yeah. So again, we are at diversification, right? Yes. So uh, not just seeking out one opportunity, but really bit of serendipity right trying yes. out different things and moving everything forward definitely and i mean coming back to maybe one point we mentioned earlier compared to the researcher role now part of my role also includes aligning and enabling the entire organization mm -hmm. which is something that's not necessarily part of an, an academic a doctorate degree so that's also something that i spend a lot of time thinking about and, and trying to improve so for example i love automations yeah. so i constantly think about what i could automate to free up more valuable work time for others across the organization so this might be sales-related accounting operations generally um, to really enable everybody to work on what's most essential for the startup. Because coming back to treating our resources mindfully, yeah. um, we have limited time and we want to achieve something really big. And this is where automation comes into play for me. Oh, very interesting. So may I ask uh, these job description cards uh, mm -hmm. or what are they called? Objective job results cards. Objective we job results cards. We call them OJRs. Results. So uh, it sounds like a great framework. Uh, how have you come up with that? Uh, it actually comes from a workshop that I visited at CDTM that was about um, scaling up your startup and they show this framework and I think a lot of other things that I actually implemented. So yeah. um, I, I love these workshops that are offered at CDTM also for the alumni community, which is great. Yeah. Um, and we've definitely put that into practice. Yeah, I think this is uh, Nikolai Ladani uh, mm -hmm. uh, hold, hold this workshop. Yes, so exactly. I also put a link uh, to his uh, his business in there. So if anyone else wants to get advice, I think he's offering this also professionally. I can highly recommend. <laughs> Perfect. So uh, let's dive in a bit more on the operational level. So could you maybe describe uh, how a typical work day or let's say even week, I imagine it's day-to-day -day is a bit different, right? Uh, looks for you and uh, which tasks are actually in there? Yes, um, that's that's a tough one <laughs> because <laughs> obviously my job is diverse. Um, I heard about a metaphor that I really liked, which um, refers to different phases of a CEO role as mini games. So it, <laughs> you, you play different mini games as a founder. So you may be in the fundraising game, for example, um, or hiring or whatever it may be. And it definitely changes how your entire week looks. And right now I'm in the sales and growth game. Yeah. So this is what I'm also really trying to focus about 80 to 90% of my time on at the moment. And this is tough because there are a lot of different other aspects that I could be spending time on, but I really try to work on what's most effective and mostly helping um, our company. I think next to that, a task that I take very seriously is onboarding new team members. Mm -hmm. um, because I think only if you work very closely with an employee in the beginning and really try to teach them everything that you know, you can 
prevent repeatable mistakes and really set them up for success. And once I have little else to add on or to teach them, I kind of give them a lot of room for their own decision making. Um, of course, this means a significant time investment for in the beginning, but I yeah. think that also allows them to work at their best and for them to also feel this psychological safety of knowing what's expected and having had the chance to learn it in the beginning. Yeah, very interesting. I haven't released the episode yet, but... Uh The guest before you, Jonas Minkler, uh, we also talked a bit about this and how your role as a manager especially encompasses also early on in the process being close uh, to your employees. And I think there's, at least coming from academia, micromanagement and uh, managing people too closely is often seen as a very negative thing. But especially in the beginning, it's sometimes also necessary to get people up to speed. And it's right, it's not micromanaging, but still a closer Uh, managing closer to the people rather than from a distance and giving them yes. all the freedom because it helps to have someone show you the way and show you how your job should be done, what's expected for you and so forth. Definitely. And I think this is what onboarding is about. It's not that you don't trust someone. It's just that you um, save time by basically teaching them everything you know and then letting yeah. go and letting them make their own decisions. Roam free, solve all the problems. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So it sounds... Uh, Mini games. it sounds like a lot of different <laughs> things, but I imagine also that your role is constantly evolving, right? Yes. So the startup grows. Uh, one day, it's just you and your co-founder. A uh, year later, or a uh, bit more maybe, uh, it's 15 employees uh, you have to manage and also, of course, look into future fundraising, etc. So what are some of the challenges on the way to where you are now that you had to overcome that required you really to learn how to do things from scratch, things you hadn't done before? Yes, so I think the three things that come to mind, I mean, there's a long list, but I think three big <laughs> things. <laughs> One was fundraising. Um, so we had the goal of raising a seed round um, after the Y Combinator demo day. And I never did this before. Um, I didn't really have any firsthand experience um, as an investor or and also somewhat limited VC network. Yeah. And I also had the statistic in my mind that over 90% of capital is still raised by all male teams. So this felt a little bit daunting going okay. into the process, being someone who identifies as a woman um, and having um, to do this job. So that was definitely something that I um, learned a lot about. Second part is sales. So my current focus, there are a lot of hard and soft skill aspects of this role. And I'm still improving on both. Uh, we now have great team members who have done this before, which is great. So I'm actually now <laughs> changed into learning from them um, and trying to, to enable through kind of scaling in the team. And the third one is related to hiring. Um, mm -hmm. This is something that I already did as part of my role at CDTM. But I think something that was definitely new to me was um, salary and equity negotiations. So, <laughs> so figuring out yeah. what is even a fair salary to someone or yeah. what is a fair um, employee stock option uh, package. And then how do you come to an agreement that everybody's happy with? And yeah, I think those were three things where I definitely had to learn new things. And my strategy has always been to use the network that we have. So after... Um, after having been at CDTM and Y Combinator, there's so many people we can reach out to who are extreme experts at any of these topics. Yeah. And my mindset is always to try not to make the mistakes that are preventable. Yeah. Um, and that's that's why we always try to remind ourselves how many people we have access to who can teach us things. Yeah, so basically, instead of thinking problems through from scratch and then trying, obviously there's some uncertainty to it, rather 
go to people or try to reach out to people that have done this before, ask them and get a head start on the problems. Yes, exactly. And I mean, no one has seen as many startups as Y Combinator. I yeah. think that's just something that, that's interesting to mention. And in our very first session with them, they said, you know, we are completely fine with some of you failing. That's part of the equation. We want you to fail in creative ways that we have not seen before. And our job, <laughs> and our job is to prevent you to fail in all the ways that we've seen a million times. Yeah. So basically, if you fail, at least YC is learning something that they can prevent the next time. Exactly. And that's the same mindset that we try to adapt um, as founders at Peanut Earth to only, um, you're going to fail anyway, but at least fail in something that was not to be forecast. Maybe to uh, get a better understanding, right? So CTM has quite powerful alumni community, uh, though I would imagine uh, a lot smaller and uh, I would say more diverse, it's not just founders, right? Um, then YC. So if you now talk about these three challenges or so on, how helpful was either network for you? So did really this YC network give you a, lo a large benefit over your existing CDTM network? What's the ratio there? That's a tough question. Um, so I think for different areas, different networks are more helpful. Um, yeah. So for example, CDTM, I think is very powerful for us for um, our team, so our hiring activities, because we are trying to hire in person in Munich Yeah. which is obviously limiting, but also I think really helps our effectiveness and I think also pays into the team culture aspect that you mentioned earlier. And being there together, just also the friendly aspect, right? Exactly. Maybe having a kitchen together, coming together, maybe also some after work drinks yes. makes a big difference. <laughs> May have happened one or, <laughs> one or two times. Um, so this is something where CTM um, definitely helps us. Also in fundraising. So before we were accepted into YC, um, we already spoke to some um, people who then later became angel investors yeah. and they're from the CDTM community um, and they have been close mentors basically from day one. So, and this is something that I'm actually very proud of because we talked to them from the beginning. They saw already some of the early struggles and we, we were always very transparent yeah. with them. And then them, having them say, hey, you know, now that you're doing your seed round, I would actually, I would love to invest in your startup felt like, um, felt great just yeah. because I felt like we did, we weren't performing in front of them or anything. And they just saw that our founder team um, could achieve great things and they wanted to be part of that journey. As a, can I imagine also there, or what I'm hearing a bit is that with those, these, these business angels were also people that gave advice to you. You really were 100% transparent in also the things with which you were still struggling and then probably going out really into this fundraising process later, talking to other VCs, it was more the fundraising minigame. It was a little bit, but also we always had the mindset of we only want people as part of our cap table, so as part of our current investors who you are always open towards so yeah. you can have a high level of transparency that's also how we're doing uh, how we like to have the relationship now uh, with our investors and whose advice you will really appreciate who you trust so that's how so it's we, not just about the money it's exactly it's not about at all the relationship right? yes because we want i mean this is a multi-decade uh, commitment for both sides if everything works out well let's say even if pina makes an exit we'd love to stay with the company and yeah. hopefully the investors as well so it's not something that is i think to be taken lightly and of course the money is important but i think beyond that it's really important that you feel like these people will help you achieve your best and we're seeing that in so many interactions i was recently in london with our investors nordstar where they did some workshops on the topic of sales for mm -hmm. example so i learned oh, very very practical. <laughs> very practical that was super helpful and i really appreciate all of the feedback that they've given us on the 
road so far. Yeah, cool. So maybe to to stay in the fundraising mini game a bit more. Uh, you mentioned at the beginning, okay, ninety percent of funding, uh, VC funding, is still flowing to all male teams. In I'm not sure whether the statistic is for Europe, for Germany, and so forth. But I think we are generally seeing a similar pattern in in different markets. So what was your experience really? during fundraising uh, did you have the feeling that there was a negative sentiment or bias uh, towards you as a female CEO or how did you experience it that's a great question um, it's hard to answer because obviously I only have the experience fundraising as a woman I've never yeah. fundraised as a man <laughs> so I can't really answer it from any first-hand observations um, honestly I did not have many negative experiences fundraising um, I try to apply the same principles I apply anywhere else so just be prepared um, Do your homework and yeah. then show up and try to do your best. And I came out of the out of the conversations um, with a good feeling and saying, "Hey, you know, I presented it in the way that I wanted to, in the way that I think is honest and truthful about Pina Earth." And if that led to a no, I think that's fine because maybe then there's not a fit for some reason. Yeah. And um, yeah, I don't I don't know. It's it's hard to say because I think also the numbers reflect that there are just not many female founder teams. Um, we're seeing a little bit of an uptrend on mixed teams, at least, which is also the case for us at Peanut Earth. Mm -hmm. But I think there are just not many female founder teams fundraising as well. So yeah. I think the problem starts a little bit earlier, actually. From what I hear, you seem to have a good experience. And also, in the end, you got the funding, right? So that's yes. important. <laughs> We and the investors that are also behind your idea. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Uh, so... Way to jump back into our conversation a bit. If the if you had the chance to talk to your younger self uh, two years ago before starting uh, Pina, what advice uh, would you have or would you have for yourself to balance, let's call it this challenge between the operational focus as a CEO, playing the mini games, raising funding, doing sales, but then also anticipating the challenges in ahead and coming back to your company values learning curiosity to learn and taking the time that even though fires are burning right and left you might spend time on solving to actually sit down and be prepared for the next challenge i would advise my younger self i think to block more time for pure thinking and what i mean by this um i try to do this now on the weekends because that's sometimes where it works best is to just <laughs> <laughs> to plan some time to be bored This sounds weird, right. but I think our minds are busy all the time with staring at our smartphone or our screen. And on the weekend, I do try to take time to basically just sit and think. And I feel like there's so many things that come together, tie in your mind and actually develop into a strategy and new ideas that pop up that you really limit yourself. If you're staring at a screen all the time, you're limiting your own capacity to think about the strategic level. So I would actually put in time blockers in the calendar. I mean, ideally during the week, probably when you're actually working um, mm -hmm. for some thinking time. I have a second instrument that I like to use, which comes from the Getting Things Done framework, um, which is also a book that helps you, um, especially if you have a lot of different projects going on and you're trying to push them all forward at the same time. And an important part of this framework is a so-called clarify and reflect session that you do every week. Mm -hmm. where you reflect back on what was happening last week, where would I like to be next week, what does it mean in terms of my priorities, and this really helps me. So just knowing that I will do this once a week um, kind of relaxes my mind every single day um, and frees it of all this mental clutter. And yeah. So not in the moment being, oh, I need to do X, Y, Z, because you know there will be 
this time every week where I actually can put all the things that otherwise pop uh, up in your mind into place. Exactly. So it really helps you to be more present also with your team members, for example, and not with a percentage of your brain to think about what am I forgetting right now? <laughs> yeah. And so this relying on this process really helps me with focus. And the third and final thing I would say is to worry less and focus <laughs> more on opportunities. Um, and I'm getting better at that, but it's still an improvement process for me um, because worrying is just not really a helpful <laughs> mind frame at all. Worrying less definitely sounds like a good, uh, good strategy. Could you maybe uh, talk a little bit about uh, why this advice would have been helpful to your younger self and uh, what would have been different today if you had listened to yourself back then? I'm honestly very happy and proud of where we are. And I'm not somebody who likes to look back and, and on things and regrets certain actions or anything like that. That doesn't feel productive to me. But I think if I had known all of these things, I would have just worried less in the process and maybe had a little bit of less of a jumble in my brain and been able to focus more on the moment and really enjoy every single day of the journey. That's something that I think is really, really important to ask yourself, am I having a good time every day? Mm -hmm. um, to not just be working towards some aloof goal that you want to achieve and only then will you be happy, but I think this happiness and satisfaction has to be there um, at least on a weekly basis. I mean, there will always be some bad days. But that's something, for example, during my doctorate, I was never only going towards this goal of the title or anything, yeah. but I really loved the process. And it's the same for the startup journey that I'm on now. Yeah, that's that's a good answer. Also good perspective, especially if you're in control of running the company, of defining your values, your principles, and shaping this environment. Exactly. Do you have any other tips or strategies uh, on how to actually keep learning as a founder while being all in on building one startup? Yes. Um, I think my biggest kind of life hack generally is reading. <laughs> <laughs> um, because books, again, help you to not have to make every single mistake yourself, but to yeah. just basically learn from others' experiences. Um, so that's probably my greatest life hack. Um, and maybe we can add some suggestions to the description of the podcast, some yeah, book sure. tips. Um, second one is if you feel like you're very, very busy and you can't sit down to read, um, I think I would switch to audiobooks and then podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> um, I love podcasts also kind of for the relaxation part of my evening. Um, and finally, um, use the resources available to you. So for example, Y Combinator has an amazing startup school. Yeah, They're YC Startup School. I'll also link it in the show notes. have been watching a few videos of them lately. Yeah, it's really great. They're also publishing new videos all the time. They very much have an approach of sharing their learnings with the wider community and not just Y Combinator startups. Um, and I think also in this context, any essay by Paul Graham is very much worth a read. Um, <laughs> it's, it's just basically because he's, on the one hand, the insights are amazing. And the second part is just the way it's written is very enjoyable. Yeah. You mentioned them now. Which books would you recommend uh, people to read? What should I put in the show notes? Sure. Um, so in my, in my um, kind of free time or relaxation time, I also really like to read fiction, um, but I will leave those out uh, for a second. So the ones that will help... If you want to get a tip for a fiction book, I think you have to listen to Geza's podcast episode in the Mostly Awesome podcast. <laughs> That's a good tip. Um, so for more business-related books, um, the ones that I've really enjoyed so far are um, Work Rules which is focused on how to create a great company culture, how to set up your hiring processes, then working backwards about basically the management style at Amazon, 
um, which is really helpful. Then more on a personal or um, kind of individual contributor level, I would say, um, getting things done. I mentioned this earlier. Mm -hmm. So if you feel like you're overwhelmed by your tasks and you never have a clear mind to think about things, this one might help you. Related to this, um, one that I really like is called Make Time which yeah. is sort of an evolution of getting things done, I feel like, because it tells you how to deal with all the devices in your life. And even though you have so many screens around you, how to still have space to think. And um, on leadership, I think um, high output management is great. Um, and final one, maybe radical candor, just as one helps with any kind of human interaction if you're trying to build a really deep relationship with someone. So that's a great reading list. Uh, also, I'll mentally add a few of them to my <laughs> own reading list. Um, just get have to get around to read them, right? Um, so, Giza, thank you very much. Uh, now, we've been talking about a few topics today. And uh, maybe to close this episode, I would like to know from you if our listeners here take one thing away from this episode, what should it be? The one thing that I would like listeners to take away is to pick a problem to work on that you really care about. I think the reason why this is so important is because the entrepreneurship journey is tough. You will definitely have um, highs, but also lows. <laughs> and working on something that you care about, and this is mostly a gut decision, it's not really a, a head or brain decision or logical decision, it will help with your resiliency. Because if you know why you're doing this, you will definitely get up again and try again. And trying for a longer time, so trying for a longer time to solve a problem, increases your chances of success. And I think that's why the core that I recommend is working on something you care about. You've heard it. Figure out what you care about and then hone in on that and really build amazing startups there. Giza, uh, thank you so much. Where can people get in touch with you? Yes, I think uh, the obvious one is LinkedIn. Um, the less obvious one maybe is Goodreads. <laughs> so <laughs> if you want to look at what I'm reading right now, um, that's also the second place to follow me. All right. I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile into the show notes and the Goodreads uh, profile people have to find out on your own. <laughs> that's fair. So thank you for joining us on the Entrepreneurship and Leadership Podcast. Uh, we hope you found the conversation with Gesa Biermann insightful. We'll be back with more experts, guests, and valuable insights on building and growing successful startups. Until then, keep pushing the boundaries of innovation and leadership in your own entrepreneurial journey.